You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Bracha, this is On Principle Challenges in Jewish Education, and I have really a great honor because we've had teachers, we've had principals, we've had heads of school, uh, we have a dean here with us, and someone that I consider a dean in many ways, uh, someone who is really a model of what it means to be a teacher, a professor, a rov, a thinker, an educator, Rabbi Dr. Moshe Sokol, who is a dean at Lander College for Men, obviously one of the most important schools for educating young men. And I have, of course, a personal relationship, I, I would hope, with uh, Rabbi Dr. Sokol, as he is the rov of my brother's family and has been the efficient at the bar mitzvahs of my three nephews that I cherish so dearly. So Rabbi Sokol has agreed to speak with us and really share some insights on, I guess, a, a real specialized topic. I know, Rabbi Sokol, I almost feel like we could almost talk about anything in Jewish education, but let's talk about a specialized topic that's close to your heart, and it has to do with the books that you are writing, the book specifically that was written, I think it was published May of 2021. And it was a book that, as we've spoken about, was very reviewed in a wide number of areas. It's a book on Agadita, a book it's called Exploring Talmudic Narratives is the subtitle, but it's called The Snake at the Mouth of the Cave. And I will tell you the fact that the book is so popular and people know about it, despite its sort of cryptic title, is another proof to how the great word of mouth I think the book had. I think another th- reason why it's success, I mentioned this to you earlier, was the fact that it's really printed by the Magid Press, which has, I think, shown itself in the last 10 years or 15 years to be a place that an English-speaking audience can find an elevated approach to learning that's not condescending at all, that doesn't sugarcoat and doesn't spoon-feed. And illuminates in an interesting way uh, a whole series of books that Magid has published. And I know that there's another one in the works, right, Rabbi? Yes, it's at the press as we speak. And as I said, the book is really about Talmudic narratives or what's known as Agadita. And I, I've had the book for a while. Because we you agreed to speak with me, I tried to cram a little bit of reading into the book. And I am thoroughly, totally impressed by it. And it's an area that, as you know, I deign to say we have a shared interest in because Agadita is a place that is, in Hebrew, we would say it's muznach by in, in many areas of the Oil Matera, or it's purely used for utilitarian reasons to get a point across, to make a drasha about. But serious study, ba'amkus, the way you, what your book does, that is not done that often. And it's, let's say there's a nascent movement for it. We hope that what you're doing heralds the beginning of the process, uh, that we go back to look at these chazal in, in the same sort of way you do. Can you, can you give us a little bit of a background though, for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, how you came to be interested in exploring this area in depth? Sure. Good question. Uh, my background is I was born in the Catskills, and went to first graduating class of the Hebrew Day School of Sullivan in Elster County, more or less, uh, which goes back a few years, I'm afraid. After that, since it was either Monticello Public High School or Bust, I wasn't going to public high school, so I left home to Yeshiva. 
Uh, I went to the Philadelphia Yeshiva. I was there for seven years, high school and base medrash. After that, I learned in Yeshiva Itri, where I got Slicha. Uh, I returned to the States, uh, continued to learn in Tarvadas, took an undergraduate degree at the same time in philosophy and comparative literature at Brooklyn College, and then took a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in philosophy. Can I stop you for a second? Because I'm somewhat familiar, other than Monticello High School, but the other names that you mentioned are all very familiar to a person who is entrenched in the yeshiva world. For a, a boy who the option might have been a, a public high school to go to the best yeshiva in America at the time, that obviously indicated that you, you're, you had a very strong passion for the Talmudic learning. I happen to know a lot about Philly and who can get in and who can't. They're very selective and I'm sure that was the case then. It wasn't like high school was an option. I meant that in a figurative sense. The only two possibilities, logical possibilities, were either staying home and going to public school, which was never a possibility and not on my radar screen or my family radar screen, or going away to yeshiva. The question was just which yeshiva. And you really went to a place that uh, I'm a Neri Yisrael alumni. And we always had, I don't know if an inferiority complex is the way to say it, but we always understood that Philly was a little bit uh, a notch above and was less open to secular studies than Neri Yisrael. The reason my parents pushed me to Neri Yisrael, although I, I might have had the props to get into Philly, was because they wanted me to be open to what they thought would be a well-rounded uh, secular education. We're not going to throw shade on the Philly yeshiva, but when you were in your young years in high school, did you have to try to become self-educated, or were you able to get your fill out of the yeshiva itself? That's a very good question, and the answer is a little complicated in that, first of all, historically, Philadelphia Yeshiva is an offshoot of Lakewood. Uh, Ravon Cutler, as you know, was a passionate antagonist of college. Uh, Revelia Shvei, who eventually became, at the time, the dominant leader of the institution, together with the Shmuel Kamenetsky, may he live and do well. But Aurelia is just kind of very, it's a very towering, passionate figure and very, very anti-college. And for that reason, on the one hand, Philadelphia was a fabulous experience for me. It, it elevated me in ways that I could never have imagined coming from a little Hebrew day school in a small town. Gave me a passion and love of learning and Dara Halima. And to this day, I tell you the truth now. You know, it's been uh, many, many decades since I was a Tom in Yeshiva, Philadelphia. And every Ni'ila that I continue to daven, I still hear Shmuel Kamenetsky's voice in the Ni'ila. You know, a lasting impact on my life. And, and I was totally immersed in learning. I mean, you know, I was Hashem, a big Masmed, and I love learning, and I was very into it. Very, very into it. But I never expected that I would become a Rosh Hashiva. I, I, I always felt that I wanted a college education, and I wanted to broaden my horizons. And so while I was in Yeshiva, basically all I did was learn. But when I went home, yeah, I rewarded the Monticello Public Library, and I would start with the letter A and just keep on going through the city. So I always had that interest. It's an incredible discipline, which I think relates to what we've been, we're going to eventually talk about, which is the ability to hold strong in one place and be able to shift into another. And I think you write in the book that one of the things you do, and I've seen it myself, I mentioned to you off pod uh, examples of it. You do use the type of daikonis that uh, a Rebbe would want his Talmudim to use in the sugya. You use the exact type of daikonis 
in the source texts uh, of the Agadita, uh, which, as you, you you heard our our podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago, that was one of the things Rabbi Adlerson and I were bemoaning was that people would just let the Agadita uh, sip down their system uh, just like a cool drink instead of really being bothered by, hey, what's going on here? Why is why is this word said? Why is this response here? So probably your Philly training under those great men is what really allowed you to take that skill and, and apply it so well in Agadita. Absolutely. I, you know, Dara Haliman is a Dara Haliman, and really one of my uh, convictions is that learning a sugya is learning a sugya, and it doesn't should not make any difference whether the sugya is a classic sugya of Yerushalayim Midas or whether it's a goddess. It's the same Mandi Amram, the same Amorayim, or the same Tanayim, the same Mechabre, uh, you know, the same people. So if you're going to learn one sugya carefully, being a dyke in every lushan and asking kashas and tiwits and not letting it fly by, it has the same ultimate or has similar ultimate value because it's well. He's a great Amarayim and Tanayim. It's our Gemara. It's our Chazal. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote in that regard. You know that one of the pioneers of popularizing learning Gemara for Balabatim was for Pinchas Taitz. I was not in the radio audience at the time. I was in Memphis, Tennessee. I probably couldn't have picked him up on the radio, even if I wanted to. But you know that he gave a radio shear, which he called the, you know, the Dafashvua. And he was an expert in saying, giving over a sugya. I've heard this. His son, Ishil Gozunzain, told me that his father hated Agatha sugyas because they were much harder to really explain. He was able to, to perfectly, with a great balance, give over the halachic sugyas and to an audience that wasn't necessarily holding teeth. But as, when he came to Agatha, he found it so hard. He found it so difficult. And therefore, the tendency became to sort of like run through it. And, and Rabbi Taitz, his son, told me the same thing. So it, it really, as you're saying, you're right, we should be able to do it. But I think many have found themselves frustrated uh, because they felt that they were under-equipped to really do justice to it, especially since, you know, as, as we talked about, there's been preconceived notions about how you're supposed to learn Agatha, some of which I think your book shatters. Before we get into the the essence of the book was Tarvadas for you, and this is just a little curiosity for me. Was Tarvadas for you a place where I could stay in yeshiva but go to college, or was there were there some because there were of course great people in Tarvadas uh, in the world of, of of Jewish thought as well. I'm speaking especially about Rabbi Wolfson. Were you able to create any sort of connection to those rabbeim? As ani masker hayom, I did not. For me, it was a, you know, I had just come back from Eretz Yisrael and I just got in Smicha. For me, it was a place where I could continue to learn seriously while I was going to college. I did not avail myself of that opportunity. And it's one of one of my many regrets in life. <laughs> I, I don't want to bring up anything negative. I just, it's just interesting to me because when, when I think about, and I know your approach is vastly different, but when I think about thinkers of the 20th century who really, in a way, lived and explained uh, Divrei Chazal in the Agadic uh, section, Rabbi Wolfson uh, clearly had an approach that was very Hasidish, but also very original. And it's it, maybe some of that Shefa r- r- rubbed off. At that stage in my life, I had no special interest in Agadic. 
Uh, I mean, I was a regular yeshiva buffer, so to speak, and learning the Sekh Shabbos, whatever I was learning at the time. And uh, I, I was not, the, the, my interest in Agadita peaked later. And it was really a product of the shiurim I gave in my shul. I mean, I teach, I give a Gemara shiur in my shul. And we would get to a sugya which had a gadata, and I would try to teach that sugya with the same care and depth of which I was capable as I was teaching the other gemaras. It just like that was I didn't skip over it, and it also I discovered uh, had special interest to the people who were attending the shear, and so that's how it evolved. It really evolved out of the shear I was giving in my shear. I saw how impactful those agadatas were, and I, I felt that I had. A distinctive approach to them as I was giving the shiurim. And then eventually I began to give shiurim of Lander, what I called Agata Tabi'ian, building on that. And I gave a whole series of shiurim on many, many different Agatas. And I just got more and more interested in it. Now, here I want to make what for me is an important point, which is that there are two kinds of Agatas, at least. You can classify them as non narrative and narrative. That is, there are agadites that are about stories or tell stories or narratives. And then there are agadites often shorter, which teach a Musr lesson or Ashkafa or Machshava. You know, they're more theological or ethical teachings. They're not long narratives. Those, in some ways, are they're challenging in a different way. Because once you talk about Machshava and or Ashkafa, you know, those are border or edge into theology, those things become complicated and flawed. And, you know, what is your, what is your hashkafa and how do you deal with these things? And people like Rabbi Wilson, for example, or others, you know, would have approached those agadites in, in those ways. I found myself especially attracted to narratives, to stories in the agadita. And that's also partially a peculiarity or product of my own interest. I minored in comparative literature in college. I love literature. Uh, I love reading. Uh, I love reading fiction to this very day. Not that I have much time for it, but uh, especially vacations, maybe, or plane rides to Israel. So I've always had this feel for literature, and they kind of blended in the agaditas, the narrative agaditas that I was teaching, and the book, the book that you have, Snake at the Mouth of the Cave, and the forthcoming book are all narratives. They're all long stories in the or or moderately long. Agadites, which tell stories. And human beings are of the very nature storytellers. That's how we make sense of our life, by telling a story. Like you asked me about my background. So I told you some facts about my background. Well, that's a kind of a story that I weave together. And I'm weaving together how how my interest in Agadites developed and how it became an important part of me. That's a story I tell to make sense out of the otherwise disparate facts of my life. So human beings, by their very nature, are storytellers to make sense out of their lives. They are lovers of story. And if you think about the Torah, the vast majority of the Torah is a goddess, so to speak, that is, it tells stories. As Chazal say, you know, the uh, story about Avraham Avinu uh, and about Eliezer finding, uh, you know, the wife for Yitzchak, is a long story told multiple times, more than Talitila and Shahalakas, you know, 
It's interesting the words Chazal use, Yofa Sichoson. Yeah, exactly. So the word, the word Yofa is an interesting term. It's because, an aesthetic term, right. Yes, it's an aesthetic term. You know, it's not more important, but it has that type of Yofifus. Right. Had the Torah been written as a book of philosophy, Chas Shalom, it would not have succeeded to transforming the world and of Yiddishkeit. The very fact that it contains stories means that Dibber Torah, as Chazal say, it speaks to people and it it ramifies and has profound impacts on people's lives. So we should not underestimate the power of story. All these different reasons I, I, I became very attracted to. It's just two little points on that. The first one is I think that the story that you've told us, which you, as you say, is really an outgrowth of the story we you tell yourself and that we all tell ourselves, I think underscores a great truth that Chazal tell us, which at first glance, sounds a little condescending. Because it does sound like, had you not had this role in the shul with Balabatim, who we both know perk up when they hear the Agatha coming. Uh, we, we've both done halachic teaching. We've both done the regular shaklavitarya, ezu neshech, or whatever sugi it is you're learning. But when there's an Agatha, the sleepy guy who's trying to stay awake is into it. And there's a, there's a, a vibrancy and an energy that Agadita has for Balabatim that isn't necessary. We spoke about it, it's not in the yeshiva world, but when you teach Balabatim, you really, and that's what I guess the older types knew, you are mechuyiv to be more involved. So I, I think it's, it could be that it was your, your hechrek to teach these Balabatim, as you say, that was the spark that energized you. Oh, yeah, I still vividly recall. One of my formative rabbim in Philadelphia Yeshiva was Mendel Kaplan. Sure. Um, who was extraordinary man, extraordinary rebbe, uh, which is a whole other story. But in any case, I still remember if he felt that the interest of his Talmudim was flagging a little bit during the shir, he would pause and say, okay, now I want to tell you a story. <laughs> and like, okay, we'll perk up. Right. Then he would continue with the shir. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. That is 100%. The other thing I would tell you is, is that um, – it's, I'm sure it's an observation not lost by you, but you're, you're correct. E- even if the story is completely fictional, let's talk about the story that Nasan Anavi concocts to teach David Amelech the error of his ways. It's true. He, he, he comes to David as if he's asking a halachic question about a case that's occurring, but it, the whole thing is fiction. There is no fellow who has a sheep that he is guarding. There isn't another neighbor who steals that sheep, but it's clear that the if David if Nussan gives him Musser for his actions with Uri and Bathsheba, it's not going to have the same effect as the filter that a story can have. And I think it's it's sort of the same uh, phenomena, if you'll permit me, because clearly David is so affected when he hears this and he realizes how that's him. Although it's through the filter of the story, he immediately does what the Sefer Ikarim says distinguishes David from his predecessor, Shoal. He says, Chatosi, you're right, Chatosi Lelikim, I was 100% wrong. So you're right, the power of story, despite whether even if it's true or not, is able to affect people in such in such incredible ways. Like Chazal say, if you want to be Makar Misha Omer Vahoya Oilam, what does the Gemara say? Leich El Agodis. And, and, and I know that's not usually what it means, but maybe the Agadita is, in many ways, penetrates and an opening in ways that the regular halacha learning doesn't. That's a great example with uh, Nasan Hanavi and David. Maybe I should be interviewing you, Rabbi. <laughs> okay, I told you. Feel free to use it, but I think it is uh, something. 
so therefore you you were able to because you were the dean and because of your your the, the significance you had you were able to start this course and from your teaching and from your coursework and your notes and your efforts developed was i guess the desire to put it all in a in a format where it could be shared by more than just the students who were had the schus to be in your shul or to be in your in, in your orbit yes absolutely because I, I realized i had all this material this, by the way, is, I think, generally how books are written, I mean, just in general. You know, people, professors give lectures, and they, you know, they write an article and they kind of put it all together. I realized I had all this material, and I do have this deep faith in the resonant power of Agata to, to attract people if they just focus on it, because the stories are just so amazing. Uh, I just felt, well, I have all this material, I might as well produce it as a book. I just wanted to make an additional point about the significance of narrative, which is that human beings like me or you can relate to the figures, the heroes, so to speak, of the, the subjects of the Agadita. In other words, the human beings. I'm a human being and Rabbi Akiva is a human being. Now, obviously, to compare me to Rabbi Akiva is like comparing the Empire State Building to an ant. Uh, I mean, obviously, totally different, but we're still people. And there's a way in which we as human beings can relate to, learn from, be inspired by what these great Gedolim did, how they dealt with problems, challenges, issues, complexities, and we can identify with them and therefore more readily learn from them because we share a common humanity. And we, Rabbi Akiva faced challenges in his life, Rabbi Eliezer certainly faced challenges in his life, and each human being faces challenges in his or her life. And we can identify with these great people and then learn from what they did and try to apply it to our own lives. Because after all, despite the extraordinary difference in our achievements, we're still all human beings. So we can identify with them and learn from them in ways that a more didactic lesson uh, is less likely to achieve. I, I think we can segue, and I appreciate what you're saying, and I think we can segue right into at least the first third of the book. I don't know if it's the third. I think that approximates it. And that is uh, who you mentioned, Rebel Yezer. Again, it just occurs to me, someone that I think we all respect for his brilliance, Chaim Salvechik writes in one of his essays that the greatness of the Raivad, uh, Avram ben David Pascaris, was unfortunately lowered by the success of his students and his writings were in great measure lost, but he's quoted, of course, and his influence is there by the great Spanish Gedolim, Ramban, Rashban, Ritvo. And in many ways, people don't recognize who the Raivad is. I think in a similar way, and his essay does a lot to reestablish the Raivad's provenance and, and his greatness of thinking, I think in many ways, there's been so much about Rabbi Akiva. In not only in the Talmud itself, but in popular culture, whether it's B'nai Akiva, people who know the story, whether it's Rabbi Kiva and Kalbasvua, Rabbi Kiva's Saif Yomov, that Rabbi Kiva's great Rebbe, Rabbi Yez, of course, Rabbi Yeshu, of course, was his Rebbe, but many people don't know enough about Rabbi Yez and Horkinus. They don't realize how important he was in Rabbi Kiva's life. Uh, people, they've heard it. Even though, as many have pointed out, I think Ratzada points out, that he's the first Tana mentioned in Shas. There's a Tanakama, right? Rebeliezer, if you look at the first beginning of Shas, Memesai, Akarinus Krishma Barvis, Rebeliezer is the first name that's mentioned. Mishosh Okahanim Magiyim, that is Rebeliezer. So Rebeliezer is so crucial, and I think your book, 
does so much in coming back and plumbing who Rebel Yezer ben Horkinus was. And, and I read it with such uh, excitement, really, because I thought I knew a lot about uh, him. I obviously, uh, you know, as the excommunicated one, the Taner Shalachnoi, but I think you were able, with the passages that you chose, the format, the sandwiches of his, of his early life, of the conflict, and especially the very moving, dramatic parts that led to his death, I think you were able to make such an important contribution to the English-speaking public about Akiva's Rebbe, you know, without diminishing who, how great Rebbe Akiva was. Anyway, that's a lot of intro. You can jump on that anywhere you want. Well, actually, <laughs> I'm going to jump upon that first issuing a caveat, which sounds an odd way to begin, but it's an important caveat for me to make, which is that and I try to make this clear in many places in the book. Little old Moshe Sokol can have no grip on who Rabbi Eliezer was and what he was like. I mean, he's so far beyond me in terms of his knowledge, his achievements. He lived, you know, 2,000 years ago. He lived in a totally different environment. His world was different. It's arrogant to think that we can define Rabbi Eliezer or engage in any kind of psychobiography or psychohistory of Rabbi Eliezer. I think that's fraught. I think it's, it's not something that I would even want to undertake. It, it rubs me the wrong way. So what am I doing in my book? I am not claiming to know anything about Rabbi Eliezer. My strongest claim is that I offer strong interpretations, if I do, of the Gemaras about Rabbi Eliezer. That's a very, very big difference. In other words, the Mechabre HaGemara may have lived many, many, many centuries after Rabbi Eliezer. There are different versions of stories. You don't know if this Agadita is consistent with that Agadita. It doesn't mean that they all kind of hang together in some refracted truth about the essence of Rabbi Eliezer, which I make no claims about. What I try to do is to learn up, you know, that's the way you say it in Yeshiva, learn up the Gemaras, or learn up the sources I learn up, and a picture emerges, but I'm not claiming that that's any true picture of Rabbi Eliezer. At best, it's just an attempt to read the Agadites according to different stages in his life. Uh, and, you know, I'm very modest about it. I really, uh, you know, who's, who am I to talk about Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Akiva? Like, these were Gedole Olam, Gedole Olam. As I pointed out in another interview, like, I, I can't even imagine what Ramesha Feinstein was like, and I lived at the same time as he did, so, like, I'm going to imagine, you know, Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Akiva, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't learn up the Gemara. Now, as the Gemara is there, just like we learn up any Gemara, we're obligated to understand these Gemaras, and, and that's all I'm trying to do. Now, a picture does emerge. I don't mean to be disingenuous, but the picture that emerges emerges from the text naturally, and I'm not therefore claiming that these texts necessarily project a true image of what Rabbi Eliezer was actually like, because who knows what he was like. Right. Again, obviously, we can only go with the statements that we have, and the same way any record of a great person, whether it's uh, Socrates described by Plato or the Balaya Gemara describing Rebbe Eliezer, it's always going to be, as we said, a filter. But I do believe that an English-speaking public, and that is your audience, yes. although there's probably going to be, who knows, maybe a call to translate this book. I think an English-speaking audience has been underserved. I think there has been a plethora of Rebbe Akiva misinformation. And I was happy that 
as I said, I'm not saying you were typhus or Eliezer's neshama, but you are giving to an English-speaking public a knowledge of someone who is a crucial figure in Shas. And he isn't just, oh, that's that guy who was put into Cheyrem because he said he refused to be Machnia himself to the Chachamim. I think that's what most people know. And I think instead of, uh, he's the one that died in Cheyrem, by providing, I think, that beginning and understanding the psychology of Rebbe Yezir ben Horkinus, of where he was coming from, he ends up really, whether it's the true person or not, you end up showing that Chazal do afford a fuller understanding of this person. You know, the, the Kotzker said that I want people when they learn Abayi not just to know what Abayi Verova said. You mentioned Yishalei Midas, one of the famous Machleks in Abayi Verova. I want them to see Abayi Verova standing in front of them. That's the way they should do. Now, the Kutzka meant in terms of Kedusha, but I also think he meant, and I, I believe this in my heart, know them as people and not in the Gratz fashion, not in the psychological over-analysis faction of finding faults with them, but actually knowing them. And I think in that sense, you can only know something based on your frame of reference. And I think in that case, reading this book helps people win the next time they learn Rebeliezer's in Shas because they know him more. He speaks to them more. And therefore, even the statement he's going to make, having to do with the Zman Kriyashma of Arvis, is going to be more emblazoned in their minds and hearts because, oh, that's that person who was saying it without necessarily making any sort of Lushitosis. Am I clear about that? I mean, I think that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, I I mean, a picture of Rabbi Eliezer does emerge from the book. As I say, I'm not seeking to be disingenuous about that. A picture emerges, but it emerges through a reading of text, and it's not... Well, let me put it this way. This is not a biography. These chapters, this trilogy, is not a biography of Rebbe Yezra. It's a modest attempt to interpret texts which themselves shed light on how the authors of those texts understood Rebbe Yezra. Yes, I understand. But w- w- we've talked a lot about method, and but the text that you've used, uh, and you mentioned this in your book, uh, in your introduction, that you aren't doing what has been done in some other areas uh, by other factions which is do comparative of various texts. You zero in on what you consider the classical, most standard version, and you take it from there. And I know you did this for a number of reasons, but also because you wanted the book to have a flow, right? You didn't want it to really be bogged down in in various possible textual differences, right? No, actually, that's not the reason. The reason is that I don't have specialized academic training in doing that kind of work. Point number one, um, it's just my field is philosophy, really. I know maybe a little bit about a few other things, too, but that's my academic training. My training is not in Talmud, academic study of Talmud, number one, although I consult such scholars regularly as I wrote my work or develop my ideas, but that's not my own personal strength, point number one. Point number two, what I was trying to do is for millennia, we Jews have, or for many, many, many centuries, we've learned the Vilna Shas. And that's, that's our life. That's the Gemara we have. And I, I have this Amuna Shlema that the Masadra and Gemara knew exactly what they were doing when they put together, how, whatever their sources were. And exactly what year it was done, you know, and who did it, I, I don't really know. But whoever did it, these were Gedoli Olam, and they knew what they were doing. Every word was chosen with care. And so the provenance, the history, the development of the text is a totally different enterprise 
you know, it, this is our Gemara. This is a Gemara I want to try to understand for what it tells me based upon the text that my Zaidi learned this Gemara and his Zaidi learned this Gemara and his Zaidi learned this Gemara. And this is the Gemara that resonates with me, which isn't to minimize the value of that other study. It's just that that's not what I was trying to do for all these different reasons. Right. Well, yes, look, it would be probably ill-advised to begin a work that you put so much efforts in and then try to learn a totally different wisdom, a totally different skill. So uh, I applaud you for, for doing what you knew. And, but I was just saying that it's, uh, I, I feel people need to know that there are people I think that are, I have been a teacher in institutions that even at a high school level felt that the way the study needed to proceed was by comparative texts and comparing uh, the differences. And, 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 and I was happy in a way to see, look, this is what I'm sending on. Based on what I'm seeing here, uh, I believe this is where uh, we can advance to. And let me just say, that not all scholars in the field of the academic study of Talmud are focused on that development. There are like Jonah Frankel, who really established the field at the Hebrew University. He does a little of that, but his main center is, here's the text, and I'm going to analyze the text based to the best of my ability. So it's not necessarily the case that the only way to study uh, a text is by studying its provenance and history. And by the way, there is an analog to this in biblical studies. So the critical biblical scholarship tries to trace the origins of different elements of the Torah, which is obviously uh, problematic from a Hashkathic perspective. But there's a whole other approach to the study of Bible, which, as I'm sure you know, is a literary study of the Bible, where you don't look at the sources. Here's the here's what the Torah says, and let's analyze it using using the best literary techniques that we have at our disposal. So this is what I am doing is an analog to that in the world of biblical scholarship. And there are Talmud scholars that do what I do as well, differently. I mean, I bring to bear my own perspective, my own yeshiva education, whatever it is. I mean, I'm interested in psychology and in literature and obviously philosophy. So I try to bring these to bear as I analyze the Gemaras that I do, aside from the core learning of the sugya, I don't claim that there's no value to that. I just claim that there are other ways to do it, and that's just, just what I do. If you don't like it, then go to the other guys. You mentioned psychology, and I, and I said this to you before we started recording, that I was very moved by your using your sources, how you were able to understand not just the psychology of Rabbi Eliezer ben his and his father and his initial relationship with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, but also about what I touched on before, the connection between him and Rabbi Akiva, and the fact that he saw in this beloved student a really an aspect of himself. And their stories do have a great parallel, although it's Rabbi Eliezer and his father, and it's Rabbi Akiva and his father-in-law, but there is a, a sense of rejection, a sense of coming to things at an older age. And I thought that was, at least from where I was looking at it, I had never been able to articulate it as well. Yes, I saw the parallels, and I knew that there was a reason why Rabbi Kiva said Rechav Yisrael Proshov on who Rebbe Yezer was, but that Rebbe Yezer himself saw Rabbi Kiva as what perhaps he could have been had things been a little bit different, and that Rabbi Kiva's flowering into the Omud of Torah Shebal Peh was really, in a way, Rebbe Yezer's vindication. I think I'm, I'm using different phrases than you used, but I think it's, it pretty much captures uh, your thrust here about their relationship and how multi 
tiered it was, how complex it was, and how beautiful it really was, and how real it was. So uh, again, I, I, I obviously encourage our readers to get a hold of this book uh, just for that. But before we move on to some other things, can you just talk about why this is the title of this book about exploring atomic nerves? And let me just preface, we know books don't start with titles. Little children think, okay, the first question is, what are you going to call your book, right? We know that we write the book, we have the idea, and then we're thinking about when we have this whole body, what am I going to call this? Like uh, uh, this interview, I'm going to have this interview, listen to it, then decide what's the title going to be. How did the the snake at the mouth of the cave become the title for this book? So being an academic type, maybe the rabbinic type too, I, I was starting out with very prosaic titles like exploring Gagadator or exploring Tommy or whatever, you know, kind of very. Then I said, somebody's going to pass that in a bookstore. That's going to like my eyes glaze over kind of thing. So I wanted a more uh, scintillating or different kind of title that might catch people's attention. And that particular title is drawn from one of the agaditas that I analyze, which I'll tell you about in a second. And it also has a kind of metaphorical meaning for me as to what the book is about. The same is true with the title for the second book, which is uh, at Nugget Press now. So I derived the title from a story between about Rav Yochanan and uh, Rav Kahana. Uh, Rav Yochanan uh, is part of a, lo- a long and fascinating complex agarit about the relationship that Rakana and then his entree into the yeshiva of Yochanan from Bavel, he goes to Eretz Yisrael, and he goes to Yochanan's yeshiva, and there's this fascinating and disturbing competition between the two of them, and they're kind of attacks of Yochanan back and forth, and fascinating agarita. But after a series of discussions, Yochanan, who was very aged at that time, looks at Rav Kahana, and he didn't see well. Uh, he thought that Rav Kahana was smirking at him, and so Ryokhanan was very agitated by that, and Rav Kahana dies. In other words, Ryokhanan's feeling that he was uh, disrespected by the young Rav Kahana, and he was an elderly, the god of Hadar in Eretz Yisrael at that time, he felt that Rav Kahana didn't treat him with respect. He was smirking at him, and that anger yielded the death of Rav Kahana. The next morning, a Talmidim Kante tells the Talmidim, look what happened, and the Talmidim say, it kind of wasn't smirking at you. He had a defect, a lip defect. It looked like it was a smirk, but he wasn't smirking. So Rav Yochanan, oh, no, I was inadvertently responsible for the death of Rav Kahana. So Rav Yochanan goes to Rav Kahana's grave to seek forgiveness. And Rav Kahana, like many people in those days, was buried in a cave. He gets to the cave, and lo and behold, there is a snake at the mouth of the cave coiled in front of it, blocking Rav Yochanan's entree and preventing him from asking forgiveness of Rav Kahana. And he is not allowed entree until he gets the right code. That is to say, first he says, uh, he wants to go to Rav Kahana, my Talmud, that doesn't work. I want to speak to my uh, Rav Kahana, my Chaver, that doesn't work. Then when he finally says, I want to speak to Rav Kahana, my Rebbe, the snake allows an entree into the cave and he goes in and then there emerges yet another fascinating uh, stage to the Agatha about the dialogue between the two of them and so on and so forth. But anyway, the metaphor here is there is a snake blocking admission into the cave. So that's where the title comes from. But for me, it's a metaphor for learning Agatha in general, because Agatha, especially these long narratives, 
is serpentine, complex, twists and turns, eludes our understanding. Uh, there's a kind of a snake at the door to the cave of analysis and entree into the inner depths of Agatha. And you need the right code to get into the cave and explore its sinuous twists and turns. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not saying that I've got the right code, but I am offering one way of thinking about it, or one way of entering into the complex and intricate world of Agatha. You know, when I first saw the title, I didn't remember about Rabbi Yochan Rabbi Kahana. I thought it was about Rabbi Lezer Rabbi Shimon. And of course, I don't know if that's going to be a piece of Agatha that you're going to deal with in the Seychelles Apoilim, where we talk about Rabbi Lezer Rabbi Shimon's life and death and afterlife and Yehuda Hanossi and, and, and a number of other things that go on there. But even I think I remember that, I remember that phrase, Rabbi, being used by the Kever when they were bringing Rabbi Rabbi Shimon to be buried. That is the motif. It appears elsewhere. I've seen that. It appears elsewhere. I mean, I was analyzing this. I got it. But yes, it doesn't. You're absolutely right to say I should be interviewing you. That 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 is that is a motif in Tabiotic literature. Right. But but I I love the the idea though is that usually we see the nochosh, you know, and I, I don't think the I think it's chivya is the word that's used, right? By Chazal. Yeah. Chivya, right, which is the Aramaic. It's not as malicious, I guess, as a nochosh, although that would be pure Hebrew. But the chavia is, yes, there's some danger here. But as the Zoyer says, that was chava's name too. Chava, chivia, it's a path that might be dangerous, but in a way is a source of life and understanding. Yes, the person has been laid to his rest, but we know that there's still vibrancy and energy there. So, you know, it, it is a fascinating symbol, this nochash that doesn't allow entrance even to the God of Ador. But by the way, I don't know if, if you make this point, but one of the things that, that I think from a literary standpoint that bring the, the Agatha so powerfully to life, and, and you have to really marvel at the detail that's included. One of the details that's included with Rabbi Yechadam is that he was of such age and some sort of eye illness that he needed a type of giant toothpicks, what they were, that were entrenched in the ground and that were somehow able to keep his eyelids open. It was like a comb, Rashi says. His eyebrows kind of were very, very long and blocked his vision. And so he needed this, he had this silver comb, which lifted up, which Tamidim used to lift up his uh, eyebrows. So he was blinded. That's, a, that's one of the, part of my analysis of the Akadis, he was blinded at some level by this and this encounter with Rav Kahana. Right. But that description of how his eyes were open really gives you the sense of what's happening. He's in a way an invalid of some sort. And just mentioning those combs, mentioning that way is, is really a way that the Chachme Ashas had, I think, of zeroing in on the detail that's going to make it alive. Any sort of literary work, you can't spend five pages like Tom Clancy describing a battleship and, and hope to keep the interest of people. You describe an aperture, you describe a little glow, you describe a little dust mote, but whatever that is, that's powerful enough for the person to believe he was there. For me, when I read the Gemara inside and I read that, it became a, a real narrative. And of course, you know, Rabbi Yochanan, along with Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva, is so important throughout Shas. And I know you deal with the, you connect this to his relationship to Rish Lakish as well. Right. Now, did you feel a responsibility to deal with, let's say, the magical realism parts of even of these not 
fantastic narratives, like the idea that Rav Shimon Bar Yochai can look at someone and he would become Gal Shalat Zomais, or that the Chalisha Sadas that you cause someone could cause their almost immediate illness or death. Did you deal with that? Or I personally have no problem with it because I'm scared, just like you said about Rav Moshe. I believe these people do have supernatural powers to do that. And the Rabbani Shalom will answer them. But did you feel in your book that you needed to describe how a person could die because the person has tightness on you? Well, I mean, to me, it's plausible that somebody like Rav Yochanan, if he were deeply offended, that would be a serious mark against Rav Kahana in a Kaddish Baruch Hu's judgment. How could you offend the Bela Adar? And if a Kaddish Baruch Hu wants to kill somebody or turn somebody into a Galtso and Samos, I, I guess <laughs> he certainly could do that if he wants. In other words, if Rabbi Yochanan was offended, then that's a serious crime. You don't offend Rabbi Yochanan. And so I could see, you know, a nice happening. It could happen. You could see a modern person coming from a certain perspective might have a problem with that. I don't. But I could see that if I was writing a work, and I know you told me off pod that this is a work that you expect anyone to read, even people who weren't religious or weren't Jewish could gain from it. And I'm sure you've probably heard responses from them. This is the type of thing which I can see a modern person struggling with. Like, are you telling me that rabbi could kill me? Are you telling me that, you know, are you investing these rabbis with such strength, with such power? Again, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just saying for yourself, you've done such a great job in being able to distill that idea. That's something which I, again, you might have a a harder time selling that. Well, that's a very, very, very good question. And as I say, I wasn't someone trying to sell anything. I did not I did not focus on that particular point. As it happens, in the next volume, I have a chapter on an encounter between Roshashis and Amin, uh, Sudoki. And uh, the end result of that is that the Sudoki dies uh, because Roshashis looks at him and he turns into a Galsha. It's almost exactly the same metaphor. And there, I unpack that... It's part of larger themes of the Agarita having to do with the emptiness of the Tzaduki approach to Talmud Torah. If you only have the skeleton of the, what's the relationship between Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat Sav? Torah Shabbat Sav is like the skeleton on which Torah Shabbat fleshes out infinite riches of the Torah Shabbat Sav. And so one way to make the point that Tzadukism, Sadduceeism is empty and bankrupt and, uh, and just it's only the bare exactly. bones. Exactly, all is bare. If we were chavrusas in the base medrash, I'd say, well, how does that stim with the other places, Gal Shalatzamos? And maybe we have to try to see if that might be the case anytime Gal Shalatzamos is used. But it's very inventive. Let's end off here with what you didn't do, and although you allude to it, one thing you did do, which I'm deeply honored is that you listened to our previous program where Rabbi Adlerstein and I spoke about who we thought were essential influencers in Agadita. And we both talked about the significance of the morale. And the morale, I know, is mentioned in your book. You talk about his approach. And you mention, of course, that there's a reason why, although you respect the morale for what he's doing, there's a reason why he isn't a greater influence and what you're trying to do. So could you just talk a little bit about that? Okay, so the question of sources is certainly a challenging one and an important one. And I can't say that I really had a Rebbe for Agarita. 
I was influenced, as I mentioned to you before, by Rosalovich's readings of Agatha, although I was not a Talmud of his and never went to YU, a crowd of very different kinds of institutions, although we both have a background in philosophy, if I can say both in the same phrase, he was an extraordinary man. But his readings of Agatha did have an influence on me, significant. But I would say that, let me start with the morale, since you started with that. There was a period in my life when I was a yeshiva bachelor in Philadelphia, like for maybe a year or two, I learned morales assiduously. I mean, my Musa Seder, which maybe the Russian Shivas weren't too happy about, but I would learn morale. I mean, every single day, I would, a half hour, I would learn morale. I learned a Benesmanim. I spent a lot of time with morale. And this may reflect my own failing, but I eventually became disenchanted, not that I had any criticism of it, but it just didn't enchant me in the way that it first did, because in order to fully um, appreciate the morale's brilliant readings of Agatha or anything else, you have to buy into his metaphysical system. And there's a chapter in my forthcoming volume where I actually discuss this, and I distinguish between what I call externalist and internalist readings of a text. The externalist reading of a text would be the allegorical one, like the morale, where Morale operates with certain abstract ideas, and these abstract ideas are reified into the actual story, the characters, the human beings that are being, they, they concretize good, evil, homer, sura, numbers, whatever the, you know, the various frameworks that the morale uses. What it does is it moves the drama away from the living human beings that the story is about and sees them as ciphers for or reifications of these abstract philosophical, metaphysical ideas that animate the morale's picture of the world. And after a while, I just, this is again, maybe my own failure, but I didn't identify with that way of putting together the world as much as I used to when I was younger. And when I came to be learning the Agarita, I would often consult morale, but I had the same feeling, like this is like brilliant and amazing, but it's externalist. In other words, it goes outside into a whole other realm. And by the way, Kabbalah does the same thing. You know, Ben Ishchai, when he uses Kabbalah to interpret the Agarita, which is also brilliant and invaluable, it also takes you to the world of Kabbalah and the Spheros or whatever, and away from the living drama that the, these human beings, about whom the stories are told, confronts. I, I just think that you mentioned Ben Yoyoda, the Ben Yishchai's book. He bifurcates it though, yes. because he could have one paragraph, which is really up your alley, really a good shot reading. And then he'll say, but you're right, the morale, even when he's repeating himself, you know that he's drawing from the same mystical well. Like, I think part of the problem in morale, although you probably navigated it well when you were younger, is that, didn't he just say this in the last paragraph? What is this new thing that he's adding? And you could really spend hours trying to figure that out. But you know that it's all really deepening a certain mystical approach, whether it's what we know as Lorena Kabbalah or Cordovarian Kabbalah. We know that it's a Kabbalistic type of approach. And you're right, the Ben Ishchai lets his readers off. He said, look, he gives them the, the indicator. Hey, this is where I'm going to do something Kabbalistic. Right. So again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. And Kabbalah is Kabbalah. Look, look, you know, Kabbalah is the Kedusha of Kabbalah. Morale is the morale. I'm not saying that. Just that when I was learning the Agadita, I felt a discomfort in being taken away from the drama. I wanted to see if I could work within what I call the internalist reading, within what it says, to see if I could come up with an explanation that 
resonated, reverberated, and was meaningful to me. So while I would always consult, frequently consult these sources, I wasn't going there. And I found myself leveraging what little knowledge I had of the intellectual history of the period that I was writing about, what was going on at the times, what were the issues that human beings were facing and Gedolei Olam were facing in terms of the Masorah Torah Shabbat Peh. I have a background in philosophy and literature and psychology. So I just found these sensibilities and bits of knowledge that I had bubbling up in me as I sought to make sense out of these difficult legatitas, which, by the way, are Soloveitchik does as well. Nobody's like Rosaloveitchik, but he also uses these kinds of ideas and perspectives. So I got it, you know, when he talks about Joseph and the brothers, and he's, it's very psychological, it's very, it's, it's, it's also philosophical, and that's what worked for me. And I, I'll, I'll repeat a point that I made to you before we started the broadcast, and I don't mean this in any like particular modesty. I, I'm not making any claims that anything I say is true. I don't know what it even means to say that you've got a true interpretation of a Gemara or a text. Who knows what that means? It's a whole other discussion in the theory of hermeneutics. But the only claim I make is that I was educated in the 20th century. I'm living in the 21st century. I lived for many years, many, many years in yeshiva. I went to university and I have certain sensibilities and I did certain research. I learned the Koros. I looked at scholarship and These are readings that work for me to the best of my ability. I'm not saying they're perfect, but this is what works for me. And I invite the reader to enter into the portal of what works for me. And if it works for you, gesunter hate. And, you know, great. That's wonderful. If not, the only challenge I have to the reader is if what I say doesn't work for you, call a kavod. But your job is to answer all of the kashas and all the problems and work through all the diukin that I went through as I worked through the agarita. If you have an alternative reading, fantastic. That's great. Because who knows what reading is true? And I have found that Chazal are so rich and so deep that they carry with them multiple readings. And that's true, by the way, Lahabdil of any great work of literature. It's not like there's only one way to read Shakespeare or one way to, to read Sophocles or whatever. Lahabdil uh, al but any great work of literature admits of multiple readings because of the richness of it. Now, we're talking about Chazal, so it's a big Lahab, and there's Kedusha here, and there's our Mesorah here, and this is our Gemara. So the Chazal were, you know, they were Chazal. So, of course, it's going to be rich and allow for multiple meetings. And I just try to offer mine, and whoever can have an alternative reading, does that right? That's great. Part of the mystical understanding of Torah Shabal Peh is that every door will come to it and be vivified by it, and be transformed based on that generation, if we really believe it to be Torosai, that Torah Shabal Peh is also, in a way, God-given, and it's part of, it's an essential part of our Kabbalah Satara and Mesorah Satara, it needs to be relevant. It can't just be original intent. It has to be able to be put on by this generation coming from whatever influences God himself knew would be powerful here. So I, I, I agree with you. We, we are mechuyev to be able to be masters. I'll even say it even stronger. It's possible even things that Rav Chaim and the Briskers said would have been almost perhaps impossible to have been said in an earlier generation. It's possible certain sorts of scientific sophistication that was happening around the world 100%. made it possible for the type of heady analysis that Rav Chaim and Rav Shemin Shkup and others engaged in. 
But the Rabbi Shalom understood if we do believe that he's behind everything, and I do, and I know you do as well, that it has to be that way. Dar, dar, vidarsha. Yes. Every dar has its way of darshaning, of trying to seek and find the truth in the Kaddish Baruch Hu's Torah. And it's Torah Hashem, and I have the Samunas HaKadim that Chazal wrote with extraordinary depth and Kedusha, and our job is to do our best to figure it out. And they were, in a way, living agents of the Hashkocha Protis of God giving this over. We know, both of us know, that that's what's kept us a people is Torah Shabbat It's our fealty to Torah Shabbat our learning about the excitement, the energy. That's what separates us from biblical scholars, just, is the fact that we have the Torah Shabbat in order to, to embrace. The only thing I would say, and maybe we can end with this, and I know I know already know what you feel about it, is that many people will say, well, Rabbi Sokol, you know, he's a rational approach, a rational approach to things, uh, as opposed to a overly mystical approach. I think it's important to note here that if we call the Rambam the arch-rationalist, which others have said is not really that true, especially if you go through Moranavuchim till the very end, but if you look at the Rambam as the arch-rationalist or his approach, he is one of the greatest champions of the idea that there are mysteries in Chazal that you need to have the key for, like philosophical understanding, and that the work in some ways was actually given as Leo Strauss and others, and I pointed this out to you before, have said to be understood on one level to the plebeian mind, but for the initiates, this is what this idea means. And there are places in Moranavuchim and others where the Rambam says there's a great big sowed here that's not being revealed, and you need to have many hakdomos, many introductory ideas, and, and be developed to really understand it. So it's interesting that it isn't just the Kabbalists who see it, like the Maral or Rav Nachman in Lakute Maran, what he does, even the Rambam and others feel that these agadatas, whether they're allegorical or not, they you can't subject them to the same sort of I'm rolling up my sleeves approach. So it's interesting, I think, that the people should know this. I, again, I don't really have a point against you. I just want to put it out there for people who are listening to this program to recognize that it isn't just the mystics or the Hasidim or this who see this as this holy esoteric knowledge. I think for years, that's what Agadita had meant to many people. Right. I, you know, let's remember there is Pardes, Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Sod. And to follow the Derech of Pshat, for example, in Parshanut HaMikra, is not to deny the va- validity or the value of the Sod or Remez or Drush. It's just these are just different approaches. And that's why I immeasurably respect if I can even use such a, a word, the morale or, you know, Benishchai or whatever approaches people take to Akadita, they're all fine. One needs to, I believe, for Torah to be authentic for you and not something that's shoved down your brain by uh, an authority figure, for it to be authentic to you, it's got to be something that you harva on, you got to work on, you think about it, and you make it your own. You know, it becomes yours. And I think it behooves all of us Whichever derech, if somebody likes, you know, the approach of Kabbalah, then make that your derech and work it through and try to figure it out and look at the Makoros. So I'm just trying to do what I do that works for me. That's my, as it were, modest attempt at a Melos Torah to try to come up with a shot that is authentically mine, that works for me, and that I feel that this is the best I could do as I work through a sugi. It's like learning in that respect any other Gemara. You, you go through a Gemara. There are many kashas. So you write a chabura on the Gemara. What does that mean? You know, I had to write chaburas when I was a yeshiva bacha. Many of us did. You know, the more advanced you get, 
So you, you, you know, you look at the cautious chart and then you try to figure out an approach that you feel answers the cautious to the best of your ability that makes sense to you. Now, there may be other approaches and there certainly are other approaches and that's fine. It's just that this is authentically yours because you worked on it and you're part of it over it. And nobody asks you any knockdown cautious to show that you're wrong. So, you know, it's an approach. And I think that that's the way to make authentic Torah, any dimension of Torah, Agarit to Halacha, whatever it is, Psach Halacha, Chuvis, whatever you're learning, to make it yours, it's got to be something that you feel works for you and makes sense to you, given who you are and what your educational background is and the Hadracha that you may have received as a Talmud. And the Amelus post the Chiddush, is the difference between I said a good vart and I actually polished it and developed it with a lot of hard work, which is in Yiddish we call it gribble arai, to finally get the book done, to actually go through the galleys, to correct, to put the pieces together, to get the input from the various editors. It's almost like you get rewarded for that, I think, Rabbi Sokol. Uh, You get rewarded for all that effort for that book to be out there, because then, like I said, it goes beyond the audience that heard it originally, and it does become something that becomes the Kenyan of the Rabbin. It becomes the Kenyan on that stuff. So yes, I appreciate your modesty, and I know it's sincere. I know you're not being disingenuous, but I still think it is important. And I think it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was in order for people to be able to know about your works, for people to go to the Magid Press uh, to to know about it and to see it and to realize that there's something there that they can hold on to. As you can say, they can model, they can answer your kashas in a different way. But that's the bracha of, of actually seeing the work done, uh, of, of putting it together. Uh, the bracha that I hope for you, it's a scar for all the hard effort, because it's not as gishmak as being machadish. The effort of the punctiliousness of detail till you get that book in order, which sometimes can be, uh, like I said, it's a difficult labor. The payers that you'll get, I think, are going to be immense. And I look forward to uh, hearing back again from you some of the responses on your newest book and hopefully be able off pot to maybe even talk stuff over once in a while. Sounds good. And thank you for the Divrechizuk. Thank you for the time. Rabbi Zoko, be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.